Welcome everyone to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, attorney, historian, healthcare advocate, and your host. Many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain name registration. That's pair.com, P-A-I-R.com. Here we dare to be reasonable, and boy, reason is in short supply in Washington, D.C. right now. Uh, we are carried by radio stations from Massachusetts to California. Some 13 states carry our broadcast, and our podcasts are available uh, on iTunes, and we hope you will listen and rate us and show your support for our mission. So thank you very much. This week... Uh, We have somebody that I've wanted to have on the show since we started, a real leader and hero for the healthcare reform movement. Her name is Dr. Carol Paris. She is president of Physicians for National Health Program, which, as many of you know, is a group of some 20,000-plus physicians committed to a single-payer approach. You know, a lot of people think that doctors uh, don't have a desire to have a single-payer Medicare for All system, and that's just not true. Physicians have really done better since Medicare was passed back in the mid-60s, and hospitals have done nothing but grow in size and and, uh, the ability to treat all sorts of things. So we taped that interview with uh, Dr. Paris on Thursday, July 27th, which uh, is a few days before this broadcast, and at the time, The whole country was holding its breath, waiting to see what the Senate was going to do. And that night, at 1.40 a.m., that's when the Senate voted 51 to 49 against the skinny repeal. The skinny repeal. That's going to be a great trivia question at the end of the year. So before we get into that interview with Dr. Paris, I want to review the historic and dramatic events of the 25th, 26th, and 27th of July And to set the stage, you will recall that in March, by a scant uh, two votes, House Republicans jammed through their plan to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And more than anything, this was a tax cut plan for the wealthiest Americans, uh, paid for by savage cuts to Medicaid and the subsidies for working Americans who needed that help to purchase private health insurance. Of course, the the House Republicans did this without any public hearings and despite polls that showed that their proposal had only 17% support in America. Uh, They did it because their president, uh, the man most of them opposed in the Republican primaries, told them they had to or else. Promises were made. Threats were made. The president told America the plan was beautiful, and the president was so giddy when it passed, that that they had this huge celebration on the White House lawn. You may recall that. There was talk about beer and, you know, high fives, lots of smiles. And a few weeks later, the president said, you know, meeting with the Senate uh, Republicans, you know, maybe that House bill was not so great. Maybe it needed to be more generous. Maybe it needed to be less mean. So after really bullying all these House Republicans to vote for the thing, the president basically stabbed them in the back and said it was mean. Well, you know, uh, Senate Republicans are a pretty savvy group, and they decided that um, they weren't going to stick their neck in that same noose. But in the end, they did it anyway. Uh, And it ended, as you know, in a blaze of ignominy. It was not... um, 
Gettysburg, but it was as fateful as, Pick as Pickett's Charge. And it was not the high tide of the Confederacy, but it was the high tide of the Tea Party Revolution. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we will relive those three fateful days last week. This is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. Leading into last week's dramatic final votes, organizations and ordinary individuals across the state put on dozens, maybe hundreds of events. Selena Vickers of Fayette County says she doesn't have a title beyond regular citizen, but she helped organize a public forum this spring to inform people about what might be lost if Obamacare were repealed. Vickers says a lot of folks came in disliking the ACA. But they really didn't understand it. And when they began to understand, there still might be things that they don't like about it, but understood that it would really hurt West Virginia if it would be repealed. And so then they started making phone calls. Citizen groups put a lot of focus on calling Senator Shelley Moore Capito, a vital swing vote. Of the four important votes, in the end, Capito made three in favor of repeal. Repeal supporters argue the ACA is an unsustainable big government program, but polls show the repeal legislation became increasingly unpopular the more people knew about it. Dan Hyman reporting. Welcome back to our radio and internet audience around the United States and around the world. This is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. Steve Larchuk, historian, attorney, health reform advocate, but most importantly, your host. And shortly, we will be playing a recorded interview with the president of the Physicians for a National Health Program. Her name is Dr. Carol Paris. And she is in great demand, as you can imagine, especially these days. And we recorded the interview just a few days ago, the morning before the, the big Senator McCain vote. So it's sort of like we were interviewing General Meade of the Union Army 154 years ago on the morning before Pickett's Charge. And uh, we, we had seen the day before uh, John McCain of Arizona helped the Republicans open debate on the plans that uh, Mitch McConnell had crafted behind closed doors. And he did that, uh, Senator McConnell, without a single hearing or any of the usual trappings of legislation, all that stuff we learned on uh, Schoolhouse Rock, you know, my, I'm, I'm just a bill until I get through the, the, the hearings and all that stuff. Well, forget that. Uh, Senator McConnell just decided he would whip it up in the back room with some of his chums. And Senator McCain voted, okay, let's go ahead and have the debate. But then they, they gave him 15 minutes to make a speech. And, of course, just a few days before Senator McCain had been diagnosed with a brain tumor, most likely mortal, although certainly we wish him the best, but the odds are not with him right now. Uh, so, of course, everybody in the chamber, in the Senate chamber, listened with rapt attention because this was sort of a maybe a swan song. We don't know if he'll be back after he has his, uh, his treatment. So Senator McCain, ever uh, the person to take advantage of a dramatic moment, spoke from the heart in the well of the Senate and basically said to all of them, He's voting yes on the debate, but don't necessarily count on him to vote for the bill because he just didn't like the way things were being done in the Senate these days. And although he spread the blame around, 
he, uh, he made it pretty clear that nobody should take him for granted. So the time proceeded, and they started to vote. They had debates, and there were really three different principal votes they were going to have. The first was on the McConnell plan to repeal and replace the uh, Affordable Care Act, and it was, as you know, had also been despised by the American people, and the Congressional Budget Office had given it a terrible scoring, saying it was going to be a disaster. A group of 10 governors, uh, Republicans and Democrats, had written to the Senate pleading them not to pass this thing, and it failed by a vote of 57 to 43. It wasn't even close. This was not an issue of getting it through the reconciliation process so you only need 50 votes instead of 60 votes. Forget that. They were even close. It, 57 people voted against that bill. So then they tried the other plan B, which was, well, then let's just repeal it and we'll delay the effectiveness of the repeal for a year or two and hope that we will somehow magically solve the problem in the interim. And, of course, uh, that one failed also, 55 to 45, with seven Republican senators voting no. So that built up the, uh, the suspense, of course, to the early hours of uh, Friday morning, one about 1.40 a.m., more or less. And the last hurrah, the Hail Mary pass that McConnell proposed was what they called the skinny repeal. And this was essentially a repeal of just the most objectionable parts of the Affordable Care Act, objectionable to, you know, to a lot of people, which was the mandates on individuals forcing them to buy insurance and the business to buy insurance. And they also threw in, just for good measure, defunding Planned Parenthood because you know women don't need health care. So let's just throw that in too. And that is the vote that the historians will write about. It was about 1.45 a.m., uh, Republican Senators Collins of Maine and Murkowski of Alaska had already voted no, so just one more Republican vote against would defeat the bill, and despite being lobbied relentlessly by the president and the vice president and by the leader McConnell and others, John McCain strode into the Senate chamber and in very dramatic fashion voted no, voted no. And if you have not watched the tape at the moment, you should. Uh, it was the moment that the Tea Party movement and all the craziness and cruelty it has inflicted reached its high water mark. When you look back and you want to pick the moment the Tea Party died, that is the moment. You can, you can circle that on your calendar. Just as Pickett's charge at Gettysburg marked the high water mark of the Confederacy, it was the beginning of the end of the Confederacy, and that vote, the John McCain vote, was the beginning of the end for the Tea Party movement. And once that vote was announced, uh, you had to look at Senator McConnell. And he looked about as defeated and exhausted as he was. Nevertheless, he had a speech for it. You know, he had two speeches, one if he won, one if he lost. He pulled out the I lost speech. And he spoke for about seven minutes, and he said to the American people, finally, what was really uh, in his soul, it was all sort of a window on his soul. And he started by saying, you know, the American people are hurting. They need relief. You know, but Senator McConnell couldn't explain how what he proposed would give anybody relief uh, at all. It just uh, maybe 
people paying taxes, you know, the rich who are, uh, didn't like to pay the taxes, but he never was able to really do anything with that. He said he was against insurance companies getting bailouts. Well, there weren't any bailouts in the Affordable Care Act. It was part of the arrangement that in order to help working people buy their own insurance from private insurance companies, they'd need some help with the deductibles and co-pays. And so if you made a little enough money, part of the deal was that the United States would help underwrite those expenses. That, that's not a bailout to the insurance companies, but it is support to your fellow Americans who frankly can't afford insurance unless they get some help. So all this insurance company bailout stuff, you know, Senator McConnell, what are you talking about? I mean, you're there. This is your moment to speak the truth. What are you talking about? He said Democrats would now want to quadruple down on Obamacare, and they would um, they would try something extreme, in his view. And he just about spit it out, spit out the word, single-payer system, socialized medicine, European health care, as if these were profanities, like that Scaramucci guy who just got shown the door, uh, profanities. And, and just, here we are. Senator McConnell just was saying, you know, these are words he could barely let pass his lips. He just hated them so much. And he said, we will be happy to have that debate with the American people. Let me just say that again. We will be happy to have that debate with the American people. And, you know, with those words, the truth was revealed. He could have said, he could have said, we will be happy to have that debate before the American people. But that's not what he said. He said the Republicans would be happy to have that debate with the American people. And that's what he meant to say. You know, fact is that McConnell and Speaker Ryan and all of the extreme conservatives who took control of the Republican Party see the American people as the enemy. We are them. We are the people with which they feel they have to debate. The, the philosophy of these anarchists is to tear down what Americans from both parties have worked for three generations to build. The country built in the this, in this spirit of community and they want to tear it all down to adopt an every man for himself philosophy. Instead of what the rest of us want, which is we are all in this together. So that's what happened on that terribly important vote. And it all happened after we did this interview with Dr. Paris. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to have the interview, play the interview with one of the heroes of Medicare for All, Dr. Carol Paris of the Physicians for a National Health Program, so great that she came on the show. This is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. wrong with American politics? It's that there just aren't enough ways for giant corporations and mega-rich political donors to funnel their big bucks into our elections and buy our government. At least that's what Donald Trump, the Republican Party, and a devious group of right-wing political pastors are saying. 
And, of course, they've got a diabolical fix for this, quote, problem. Their scheme is to turn tax-exempt, far-right churches into gushing sewers of political money, secretly channeling unlimited amounts of cash from corporations and right-wing extremists through the churches into the campaigns of politicians who'll do their bidding. They don't admit this, of course, instead wrapping their scheme in the pious rhetoric of religious freedom. Their point of attack is the Johnson Amendment, a 1954 law passed by LBJ that prohibits tax-exempt charities, including churches, from endorsing candidates, funding campaigns, and directly engaging in politics. The Alliance Defending Freedom, an extremist Christian operation pushing repeal of Johnson's amendment, asserts that banning churches from overt political campaigning lets the IRS, quote, tell pastors what they can and cannot preach. Clever, but totally dishonest. First, the issue is not whether the government can tell church groups what to say. It can't. But whether taxpayers should subsidize a church group's electioneering views and activities. Second, and most diabolical, repealing the Johnson ban would turn these churches into holy temples of dark money. Special interest funders would rush to these political, quote, charities, not only because the churches would be super-secret super PACs, but churches are tax-exempt, meaning the donors would also be blessed with a tax deduction for their corrupting campaign contributions. This is Jim Hightower saying taxpayers would be underwriting the corruption of American politics. How ungodly is that? (laughs) Hey, everyone, let's all stop what we're doing and take a moment. You see, every moment can be kind of special. But they could be loud moments, goofy moments, dorky moments, it doesn't matter. Because every time dads like us take a moment like that to spend with our kids, well, it's pretty momentous. So let's take a moment to make a moment. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. Uh, This is Steve Larchuk, your host. And this week, we have the great honor of having the president of the Physicians for National Health Program. Her name is Dr. Carol Paris. Dr. Paris, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Steve. And where are you today? Well, I'm I'm back in Nashville temporarily. That's where I live. But... um, I have a sister who lives in Silver Spring, Maryland, and she now refers to her home as Mary Pat B&B, and the B&B <laughs> stands for Bed and Bale, for <laughs> sisters who are civilly disobedient. Um, so <laughs> I'm spending more and more time uh, sleeping at her house and protesting in Washington, D.C. Well, my guess is that most of the listeners to this program I uh, know what PNHP is, Physicians for National Health Program, and I just want to say quickly that it is a uh, national association or group of physicians who for many years have been uh, pushing hard for a national health plan of some sort. Uh, they're, they're less particular about exactly its format, but quite emphatic about what it, it should accomplish in terms of making sure everyone has access to health care. And you are the current president. And I just wanted to spend the first segment here with you, and we're going to have you with us for the rest of the hour. The first segment is what's happening in Washington, D.C. And you just made a joke about uh, bed and bail. Uh, you were arrested just last week, was it, or the week before? Yes, it was last week um, at the Hart uh, 
Senate building in the atrium. Uh, I think the important point here is that when I, when I was arrested, I just think this is fascinating. I was in the police wagon with three young uh, sort of millennials and then one older fellow like me. And we had some time to chat and found out that none of us knew anything about the other's organizations. And we all came from different organizations. And yet we're all sitting in a police wagon, all in handcuffs, all arrested, protesting for the same thing. And what we were protesting and, and um, you know, what we were protesting is, is two things, really. One is kill the bill, meaning the, the Republican legislation. But the second was Medicare for all. We were not protesting Medicare for all. We were championing Medicare for all. And I think that that is what is so important about what's going on in Washington, D.C. right now, is that people are not saying kill the bill um, and let's just keep working on the Affordable Care Act. Not, not the messaging. The messaging is kill the bill. It's time now to move to Medicare for all. Well, when I was preparing for this interview with you, I was uh, just going back through history a little bit. Way back when the Affordable Care Act, which everyone calls Obamacare, but it's actually the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, when it was first being debated in Congress, you went and were one of the people arrested at uh, even then because your your point was that single-payer Medicare for All was not even on the, the table as being a consideration. The insurance companies were basically saying, Look, we'll we'll go along with some change, but you can't have that single payer stuff, or we're out. And you you stood up and protested, and you were arrested even then. And let me just finish this point by saying, a lot of times when polls are done about whether people like the Affordable Care Act or don't, a lot of people who say they don't don't like it because it didn't go far enough, not because it went as far as it did. So that being uh, where where it is, the. The turmoil in Washington this week and last week, actually all year, has generated something else, and that is a growing movement toward single pay. Are you seeing that from your point of view? Yes, and I talked about that on Democracy Now! Uh, last week. What I'm seeing is a movement of movements. When, when people are coming from all different walks of life and organizations, and coming together to the point where you don't even know who the other people are sometimes until they've done an action and, and realize that they've, they've done a direct action or civil disobedience for, for a cause that you're championing too, that's, that's when it's become... Um, that, I can't think of any other better term for it than, than a movement of movements. It's, it's like a tsunami. It's gaining so much momentum. And the other, the other point is that that is gaining energy and momentum from the grassroots. That is, we're not asking permission anymore. I mean, I think that was the mistake that we, we made in 2009, is that we were too timid, and we thought... We actually had to have 
our, our members of Congress uh, buy into this. We, ha- we had to have them tell us that it was politically feasible, and they were telling us it's not politically feasible. And, and so many of us bought that in 2009. We're not buying it anymore. Um, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I- I'm, I'm not a fool, and I am not waiting for Steny Hoyer or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or anybody else to tell me, okay, Carol, now it's politically feasible. Not waiting for that anymore. A recent Pew Research poll revealed that fully one-third of the people in, in the United States are absolutely in favor of a Medicare for All system. Now, one-third may sound like it's not very many, but it's a, a huge number. In fact, when you consider that that has gained 5% just since January, according to that same survey. So if it's gaining uh, 1% a month, and I have a feeling that with all this twisting and turning in Washington, it's going to do even better than that. The The real question is, when are we going to be ready, those of us who believe in a Medicare for All type program, when are we going to put our cards on the table and say, here's what it'll look like? So what's what's your thought on that? Um, what do you mean, what are we going to... Well, do I there, think we have a piece of legislation, H.R. 676, that spells out very clearly what it is that we want? Well... That's one version of single-payer, H.R. 676, introduced by Congressman John Conyers every two years for the, I don't know, past 15 years. And I believe it's up to, what, 115, 120 co-sponsors? 115. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's great. But there's a a similar but different plan out in California, Healthy California, that they're trying to get through the California legislature, which is also a sort of a Medicare for all, but they're calling it Healthy California. And that's a little different than there. There was a bill in Pennsylvania, a bill in Vermont, uh, a bill in, in Illinois. There's all sorts of flavors of single payer out there. And the question is, when we reach that point of critical mass, when people are finally ready to say, okay, we're listening, what is it that we're saying? Is it is your position that we really need to put all of our, our chips on, six, on HR 676? It actually is. And I'm not discouraging any state from um, putting forward a state um, single, a state single payer bill. But I am going to be very um, determined that if you're calling your bill single payer, then it really has to be that. And, And that's very hard to do at a state level to get all of the waivers necessary to actually have a, a truly single-payer bill. Okay. We're, because what does, sing, what does single-payer mean? Dr. Perry, I'll tell you what, let's, let's pick up on that, the very point, after we take this break. So we're going to take a break. Our guest for the rest of the hour is Dr. Carol Paris, president of the Physicians for a National Health Program. And she is going to be with us when we come back on the other side. This is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. You're listening to Win Workers Independent News, a diversified media enterprises production. I'm Doug Cunningham. Black Women's Equal Pay Day is Monday, July 31st, the day that marks how long into the year black women have to work 
to be paid the same wages as a white man was paid last year. The Economic Policy Institute says black women workers are paid just 67 cents on the dollar compared to white non-Hispanic men. And that is even after controlling for other factors like education, years of experience, and location. Black women workers in the U.S. are the victims of both gender and race pay gaps. EPI says over the last 37 years, gender wage gaps have narrowed, but racial wage gaps are worse. White women's wages are 76% of white men's, but black women are at 67% of white men's wages. And EPI says myths, like if black women worked harder, they'd get the pay they deserve, are false. Black women work longer hours than white women. Economists at EPI say a second myth is that black women can educate themselves out of the pay gap. EPI says black women are paid less than white men at every level of education. A third myth is that black women choose lower-paying occupations. The reality there is that in all occupations, black women make less than white men. Wins Joanne Powers has more labor news. The United Steelworkers reached a tentative agreement with Goodyear Tire and Rubber late Saturday night, averting a possible strike just hours shy of the deadline. If approved, the five-year master contract would cover 7,000 workers at five plants in Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina, Alabama, and Kansas. Workers voted in April to authorize a strike if an agreement couldn't be reached before the previous four-year contract expired at midnight Saturday. Although both sides have been largely silent about negotiations, the Steelworkers Policy Committee indicated in a message to members on Thursday that the company and the union were still far apart on issues including wages, health care, scheduling, and pensions. They also alleged that Goodyear had threatened probationary new hires with firing if they took part in a potential strike. The agreement must now be ratified by USW members at the individual plants. Votes are expected in the next few weeks. The union representing 16,500 workers at Walmart's main supermarket chain in Chile announced Friday that workers have voted to go on strike calling for higher wages. Walmart operates nearly 400 stores in the country. Either party can now request government-mediated talks in an attempt to reach a settlement and avert the strike. Brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield National Labor Office, empowering working Americans with stable health coverage for over 50 years. The National Labor Office is committed to remaining the top choice for the 17 million union workers, retirees, and families they serve. Online at bcbs.com NLO. You've been listening to WIN, Workers Independent News. For more information, visit workersindependentnews.com. It was 1973. Helen Reddy's song, I Am Woman, was at the top of the charts. The feminist movement was in full swing. A group of Boston women office workers started talking about how they were treated at work, how men made more money for the same jobs, how they couldn't take time off to care for their kids without putting their jobs at risk. They were feisty, empowered, and fed up. They founded 9to5, a membership organization of women working in low-wage jobs, inspiring a national hit song and movie. Whether it's fighting for better leave policies, for equal pay for equal work, to ban the box or strengthen the safety net, 9to5 is on the front lines of putting our issues on the public agenda, and they're winning big. Find out more about how they're raising the bar at www.9to5.org. That's the number 9-T-O-number-5.org. Welcome back, everyone, to this very special edition of Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. And with us this week is Dr. Carol Paris. 
who is the president of the PNHP, and many thanks also to our national sponsor, Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain name registration. Learn more at pair.com. That's P-A-I-R.com. And Dr. Paris, before we took our break, you were getting into what is single payer and what isn't single payer. And I, I, we could go on for hours, and I really don't mean to do that. But when you say single payer or Medicare for all to somebody, what, what do you mean? What I mean is a very um, simple and actually very conservative way of financing our health care system um, in which all of the money that goes to finance health care, instead of going into hundreds of different individual um, plans in tens of, you know, probably 10 to 20 different in, uh, insurance companies, as well as Medicare, Medicaid, S-CHIP, VA. So right now we have a very fragmented system of financing health care. When I say single payer, I'm, all I'm suggesting is that we take all of the money that goes to finance health care and put it into a single risk pool. And, and that's simply to achieve the economy of scale that one gets when you put when you pool your your resources with all of the money in a single risk pool we are distributing risk most effectively and efficiently what we're really doing is just eliminating a middleman the insurance industry that serves no useful purpose and in fact is draining they're like a parasite um, just sucking money out of a system that we as Americans are paying for we're already paying enough money in this country in public dollars to cover everyone and yet we still leave at this point close to 20 about 20 million people uninsured and if the DCRA and one or the other of its iterations is passed, we're going to leave another between 16 and 32 million uninsured. So when I say single payer, it's just a way of financing health care that is conservative, efficient, um, very fiscally responsible use of our tax dollars. Well, the other thing that I think all of us who were in this world of trying to improve health care keep in mind is even if you have a card in your wallet right now that says it's a health insurance card, if the co-pays and the deductibles are beyond your means, you are effectively uninsured. And it's outrageous when so many people say, oh, well, he's insured or she's insured. And then when you look a little closer, they have this this insurance they can't possibly use. Now, in California, uh, the economists who, who evaluated their plan, they calculated that fully a third of the people in California who theoretically have insurance really don't because the copays and deductibles are so high. So wh- where would copays and deductibles fit into a plan the, the way you envision it? As it is written in H.R. 676, the uh, Conyers bill, there would be no barriers to care at the point of service, meaning 
no premiums, no co-pays, no deductibles, no skinny networks, no getting, um, you know, an insurance company telling you where you have to go and what tests you can have. All of that goes away. There is full choice, complete choice of doctor, hospital, and pharmacy. So the only thing that's liberal about H.R. 676 is the benefit package. And that's for people who are currently on Medicare now who are facing co-pays and deductibles and premiums. So this is, you know, I'm going to be on Medicare in three more months, so I have to start figuring out what plan am I going to do and which pharmacy benefit if I need one. And all this who struck John that I'm a physician and it makes my eyes glass over. All that goes away. That goes away for one of our most vulnerable populations, our senior citizens. Wouldn't it be wonderful for them if they didn't have to go through this who struck John year after year and could actually just have free choice of doctor, hospital, pharmacy, get the, the things they need, and, and let the market do its job on the delivery side. I'll pick the doctor I want. I'll pick the doctor I think has the best results. Uh, I have no problem with the free market on the delivery side of healthcare. What I have a problem with is, is saying that we're, we're using market forces on the financing side um, to, to drive down the cost of health care. Because if that were true, we would have seen the cost curve shift in the last 10 years, and it hasn't. It didn't shift before Obamacare, and it hasn't shift, shifted since Obamacare. Our, our spending is still going up well, we keep hearing, astronomically. We keep hearing the other side, the, the conservative Republican side, talking about how they want patient-centered care. And I, I just have to laugh every time I hear that, because what they really mean is they want insurance company-centered care, because that's what it's going to be, just the way it was before the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was passed. And if we go back to the bad old days, it's, it's not only going to be as bad as it was, it's going to be worse than it was. But while I, while I have you here, my guess is that you, you have your finger on the pulse of, of a lot of uh, key people. And back in February when we started this program, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders was promising any week now he was going to roll out his version of single payer. And of course, he's the most popular elected official in the country right now. And so all of us who are out here uh, waiting or still waiting. Have you heard anything at all that, that leads you to believe that a bill is coming from uh, Senator Sanders? I don't have any more intel than than you do, Steve. I'm as, I'm as frankly disappointed as, as you and your listeners. Um, we keep hearing it's coming this week, it's coming next week, and the excuse is that he's waiting until the Republicans are done doing whatever it is they're going to do. Um, I'm not a politician, so I, I'm not going to I'm not going to weigh in on that. That's that's his decision. Um, but as I said at the beginning of the show, I'm not waiting for Bernie Sanders or any politician to give me the green light to go forward with um, building a movement 
in the grass among the grassroots for Medicare for all. Bernie Sanders is not the only champion of Medicare for all. So, you know, I'd like him to to release his bill, but I'm not waiting for it, and he he doesn't give me the green light. Well, and I'm not suggesting the American should... people we give ourselves the green light. Well, and that's uh, that's the way it should be. Let me just I'll just tell you a little birdie told me that the real hang up is he's trying to get a uh, an economic analysis of his proposal and the people that are doing it uh, got d- delayed and that's what they're waiting on and I think the other problem is that people like Diane Feinstein senator from California has come out and said she's not for single payer which is just shocking to me but I mean of all places and of all people but uh, we'll We'll deal with that. As you say, this is that's the political side of this, but the show is called Healthcare Politics, so we sort of get into mm-hmm. that. We'll tell you what, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, what I'd like to really have you do for the listeners is to tell them what they can do to help. What action can they take? Who can they call? What should they do? So p- please be thinking about that during the break. This is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. While college and university tuitions go up and up, higher education administrators have been spending less on students' education. Today, only a quarter of higher ed faculty has secure full-time jobs. The rest are so-called adjunct faculty, hired on a per-course temporary basis, often with no benefits and are paid just $2,700 on average per course. Dedicated adjunct faculty across the country are joining together and fighting back in defense of their students' future. In Pittsburgh, they have formed the Adjunct Faculty Association, affiliated with United Steelworkers Union. Adjuncts and students all over the city are joining the AFA to achieve the goal of providing high-quality, affordable higher education. To know more or to support Pittsburgh's adjunct faculty, give us a call at 412-562-6967 or find us on the web at usw.org. Again, that's 412-562-6967 or usw.org. Together, we can take higher education back. Most of my family, they never graduated high school, so I'm trying to break that barrier. My daughter, Brooklyn, was also a motivation for me to go back to school. Every day after work, went straight to school, and it paid off. At age 26, Kareem finished his high school diploma. I could not have done it alone. I see the future is really bright for me. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Let's all stop what we're doing and take a moment. You see? Every moment can be kind of special. But they can be loud moments, goofy moments, dorky moments, it doesn't matter. Because every time dads like us take a moment like that to spend with our kids, well, it's pretty momentous. So let's take a moment to make a moment. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 66, works with builders and contractors to build a better community. Local 66's tradesmen and women have received the specialty training needed to meet the complex challenges of any project, making them the most capable workforce in the region. From schools, highways, and pipeline projects to casinos and arenas, the operating engineers build any job, large or small. For over 100 years, Local 66 has provided superior service that our community can count on. 
They are your one-stop resource for qualified and productive operating engineers and heavy equipment mechanics. To learn more about the benefits of organized labor and more information about the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 66, go to www.iuoe66.org. That's www.iuoe66.org. Welcome back, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, your host. And our guest for the week is Carol Paris, Dr. Carol Paris, who is president of the Physicians for National Health Plan. You know, I keep calling it plan or program. Which is it, Carol? program program Thank you okay for <laughs> physicians for for a national health program and we've had a terrific conversation about what's going on uh, more to the point uh, what would we like to see going on and now with the time we have remaining we're going to talk a little bit about what the average person can do to help move this country move their neighbors move their politicians toward a medicare for all type system so carol what what can we do what can every single one Hi. of us be doing I'm delighted that you asked, and I have some very specific things that I, I recommend. First is anticipate the opposition. So because we're gaining momentum, anticipate that the insurance industry is going to start um, their opposition campaign. So the first thing that, that people can do is learn everything you can about what the opposition is going to be touting. The first thing you're going to hear is that it's too expensive, and they're going to throw around the number $32 trillion. Uh, they're also going to try and, and say, well, we can only do this incrementally, so maybe we should try a public option. So the first thing I recommend people do is go to a, the pnhp.org website. We have various pages on that website that debunk those kinds of arguments. We also have a page that is devoted to um, cons how to make the conservative case for single payer. It's called uh, pnhp.org forward slash GOP. I reckon there's some great webinars on there. It's easy to watch. Educate yourself. And then go out and don't be afraid to talk to your conservative family members and friends about single payer. But just educate yourself about how to do that using talking points that resonate with conservative listeners. If I have a criticism of the single payer movement, it's that we have siloed ourselves far too long in a liberal echo chamber. And that's kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. We need the support of our conservative family members and neighbors and friends. And this is, this is a conservative bill. As I said before, it's conservative financing. The only thing that's liberal are the benefits. But we have to learn how to take that message to the American people. So that would be my first thing. Then get involved in um, direct action. There is also a campaign taking place this August, um, the town hall campaign. There's information about that on PNHP's website. Uh, you can also go to um, 
healthoverprofit.org information there on how to participate in town halls across the nation in August, being a loud, in-your-face voice for single-payer improved national improved Medicare for All. So you can go to those websites. Um, there's also uh, healthcare, um, healthcare, or healthcarenow.org. Um, so there are, you know, depending on where you live, there are various organizations that are already in place um, that you can begin to participate with. Uh, some of the indivisible groups are very much moving beyond the just defend the ACA to it's time to go forward now to Medicare for all. So I would say get involved in your community. First, educate yourself, anticipate the opposition so that you're prepared with, um, you know, the information that you need to debunk the opposition's arguments. And then get involved at the grassroots uh, level, especially in town hall uh, actions this this summer. The August recess is going to be a critical time for us. Well, th- that's just that's just terrific, all of those suggestions. Let me just add my um, hallelujah to that. I think all of us need to have the courage to actually not confront, but have the conversation with our friends who are in their own silo, that Fox News silo or the Trump silo. You know, we all have friends and family that are in, the, in there, and we sort of do our best to avoid the conversations because we don't want to have a screaming match. But if you are equipped with some rational and calm presentations, if you don't take that opportunity to talk to them, they're never going to hear it because they're flipping on Fox News or they're they're reading their tweets from um, the president. And if it's not somebody like you who believes in Medicare for all, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Ms. Listener, that tells your friends and family the truth, they're not going to hear it. But as uh, Dr. Paris says, you better come equipped. You can't just be shooting your mouth off and waving your fist. You've got to have some solid arguments because you're not going to get a whole lot of opportunity to, to pull them over. And if you could just pull them a little bit further to the middle, you've done a great thing. So so that's terribly important. The other thing I just want to add, uh, Dr. Paris, and this, this is an optimistic note, I hope, I went up to the Trump 100-day rally with my little digital tape recorder, and I interviewed 26 people standing in line to see him up in Harrisburg, and I asked them about health care. And honest to God, they could have been standing in a line for Bernie Sanders. It was really the same thing. They all want the same thing. It's amazing how we really all, as a country, want essentially the same thing, and it's the very things that you've been discussing. That that is absolutely the most important thing we can do. And and I'm so glad you brought it up. Before you start talking to someone about single payer, especially a conservative, the first thing you should do and must do is listen. Listen to what their concerns are. Because when you listen to what people actually want and need, you find out, as Maya Angelou used to say, we are more alike, my friend, than we are unalike. So it, it really begins with 
having the patience to listen with an open heart and finding the common ground because then people are more willing to hear what you have to say. If all you do is beat people up with your point of view, I, I don't think you're going to get anywhere. Well, but that... I think when we listen with an open heart, um, that's a great place to start. And i sad to say we're approaching the, the last minute of our time, and so I'm going to claim some of it for myself. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more on what you just said. And what I've learned from 30 years of practicing law is people are not listening until they're done talking. And so if you really want to engage in a conversation, you have to be able to sit and let them talk and let them finish their thought, ask a few questions just to prove you're listening, but let them finish because until they're done talking, they're not listening. And that's when the conversation can start. Uh, Dr. Paris, thank you so much. I know this is an incredibly busy day for you and time. Thank you so much for everything you're doing and everything you've been doing. And good luck there with Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. All right. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been a pleasure having you. And we're going to take another break. And when I come back, I'll have some final thoughts. This is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. Attention men under the age of 35. You know what really impresses the ladies? When a guy has a few drinks and later gets pulled over for buzz driving. That could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. There goes let's grab dinner and a movie. Oh, I know. You drive more carefully when you're buzzed. You've proven that hundreds of times. A woman admires that kind of confidence. And you've practiced how to speak if a cop does pull you over. Slowly, clearly, and politely like, good evening, officer. A woman admires that kind of foresight. And what woman doesn't find it adorable that you call it buzzed even though the law calls it drunk? You could kiss $10,000 goodbye, along with any chance of having a girlfriend. Because nothing says, I'm a catch, more than a guy who lives in his parents' basement and calls it my place. Buzzed, busted, and broke. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. I wasn't prepared to be a caregiver to mom. I had no idea how hard it would be and what I would need to know. Things I never thought of, like how to improve her mood and ways for me to stay positive. Luckily, I found the Caregiving Resource Center from AARP. It had articles about the basics, but also information about the hurdles I was facing. Caregiving Resource Center at aarp.org caregiving. Articles, tips, and tools to help you both care for your loved one and care for yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey y'all, I'm Blake Shelton. I love that country music connects people all over this great nation, but unfortunately so does something else, childhood hunger. 15 million children struggle with hunger in America. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks works to rescue our surplus food to help provide billions of meals to families in need across the country. Join the fight against hunger at feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. 
Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. One in seven Americans will struggle with addiction during their lifetime. Want to know how you can help? Go to heretolisten.com for tips and tools to help turn addiction around. A public service announcement brought to you by the Ad Council. And welcome back, everyone, to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. We're wrapping up uh, this week after a really interesting conversation with one of the great leaders of the Medicare for All single-payer movement, Dr. Carol Paris, who is the president of Physicians for National Health Program. And you should uh, go there and learn more about it. She gave us some excellent pointers on how to make the case for health care for all, Medicare for all, go to pnhp.org. That's the Papa November Hotel, papa.org. This is Steve Larchuk, and this has been Healthcare Politics. You can hear our podcasts on iTunes, or you could go to our website, which is healthcare-politics.com. That's healthcare-politics.com. You can listen to all our shows. I'm pleased to say people are telling me that they're binge listening to get caught up, which is really great. Uh, We are heard on uh, stations from Massachusetts to California, some 13 states, and that's wonderful. We need your support to keep going. So please do go to our website to see how you can help. This show is produced in Pittsburgh, thanks to the excellent help of people at TUE Media. Our producer and booker is Ann McGeary, Dr. Ann McGeary, I should say. The music that you've been hearing, the name of the song, if you want to get it, is Healthcare is a Human Right. That is courtesy of Mike Stout. And this is going to be uh, the last of a 25 first season for us. And I can't thank you enough. It's been wonderful. And we are going to keep at it for as long as uh, we need to be heard. So this is Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. We'll see you next time.